doing this, I do want to welcome Wayne Sutton this morning and Sarah. And uh, you're coming a sabbatical. And uh, Carubba's uh, Christian Centre obviously is a great gospel partner with us in this city. And so it's great uh, that they're giving Wayne a break. And let's just pray for Carubba's this morning. And as we will pray for ourselves as well, let's pray now. Father, we want to thank you, even though uh, the world at times looks so confusing and out of control, yet your word teaches us that you are fully in control, working out your purposes, that there, even in the cross of your Son, we see uh, human attempts of great wickedness, and yet your overarching uh, supreme plan of salvation being worked out, and that we can trust you. Lord, whatever the result uh, in this coming election, we can trust you. Father, whatever circumstances we're facing in our lives right now, we can trust you through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to thank you for the gospel, for the hope it gives us. We want to thank you for Carubbas and the way that that church proclaims the gospel. And we pray you grant Wayne uh, great rest and and, uh, refreshment in his sabbatical. And we thank you for that church. We pray you bless those who will be preaching there this Sunday. May the word go out with great power. And Lord, we look to you. We, we want to meet with you this day, Lord. We don't want to go through the motions. We don't want to just let this moment pass by. And so we ask you, would you be kind to us and reveal to us your glory in both your kindness and your severity? We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, are you soft-hearted? It's really not one of those things that uh, you're supposed to be as a man. It doesn't sound very macho, does it, to be soft-hearted? Um, I have to confess, the older I get, the softer-hearted I think I'm getting. I can be watching a great sporting event or some achievement. I think I was watching some report about soldiers getting home. I think they were from getting back to Edinburgh, weren't they? And uh, tears just start filling up. And the older I get, the more tears come. Uh, And it's not supposed to be particularly macho. But you know, if you sat down and read from chapter 7 in Exodus right the way to chapter 11, you would see for yourself that hard-heartedness is far worse. Hard-heartedness is a terrible place to be. Now, I'm not going to read all these chapters, but I want to read a significant section of Exodus. So please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. And we're going to take the right time to read sort of a chapter and a half really here. Exodus chapter 9. You'll find that on page 66 if you don't have a Bible with you in the church Bibles on page 66. Exodus chapter 9. And if you're here visiting us this morning, we're in the middle of a series. We're working through this great Old Testament book of the book of Exodus, and this is where we've got to uh, today. So listen carefully to God's word. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go so they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 
For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in, and it is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the, officials of his, and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have seen from the day they settled in this land till now. 
Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But just who will be going? Moses answered, We will go with our young and old, with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because they are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No, let only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt so the locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days, no one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. This is God's word. A number of weeks back, I suggested that what we have before us here at the start of Exodus is a sort of a titanic clash that far outweighs any of the great boxing tournaments there have ever been. Forget the rumble in the jumble, uh, jungle, this is the, uh, the rumble that made Egypt humble. And we considered uh, the press conferences 
of the two major opponents, Pharaoh in chapter 5 and then God in chapter 6. And do you remember the response of Pharaoh to, to, to Moses' request to let his people go? Pharaoh was full of derision. Let this slave labor just walk away? They've got to be joking. Who is this God of the slaves to say such a thing? Turn back to chapter 5 and verse 2. 5 verse 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. See, on the international scene, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, was not known. Mighty Pharaoh, running the world's superpower, was not going to humbly submit himself before God. And yet what we see in these chapters is that God will be known. We've got the PowerPoints that we can put up there. He is the God who will be known. Look at uh, chapter 7 and verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. See, here is the, here's the larger theme in the book of Exodus. This is a book really about God revealing himself to the world. This is God revealing himself as the God of glory. Uh, the God who can um, effect great salvation. The God who is judge over the earth. This is what's really going on in this book. Remember the enigmatic name that God gave to Moses. Uh, whenever you read in the book of, uh, of the Old Testament, for instance, the uh, the word Lord in capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's signifying the word underneath is this word Yahweh. We think it means Yahweh. Which uh, God explains to Moses at the burning bush in this way. That I am who I am. Or it could be translated this way. I will be who I will be. And God is saying in that enigmatic way. You watch what I do in history. And it will reveal to you the God who has promised to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to bring blessing into this cursed world. It reveals the true and living in God. And that's what we've got going on in this account here. Let me illustrate how the plagues, um, or, or as this text calls them, these signs and wonders function. Look at chapter 7, verse 15, as you consider the very first uh, plague of water into blood. Moses is commanded to, by God to go to Pharaoh with a command and ultimatum. Look at chapter 7, verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and as he goes out to the water, wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. 
with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the waters of the Nile and it will be changed into blood each of these signs and wonders is, is God declaring about who he is about his power about his character so we can know who the true and living God is and there's a pattern here of, of the first three plagues uh, and you can see a pattern that gets repeated three times until we build up to the knockout blow in the tenth round uh, of the, the, the killing of the firstborn sons we have to ask the question why does God send ten plagues he knows the first nine are not going to achieve the deliverance of God's people. If you turn to chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he'll drive you out completely. One plague more. See, on the one side of this final plague... Uh, on one side you've got nine plagues that are not going to bring deliverance and then there's going to be this one plague and, and, and Pharaoh is going to be desperate just to get them out desperate to get them out and the Lord knew that now so why why ten plagues you know if, if the knockout punch was the tenth why not just jump to the tenth and the answer is this God is revealing himself to us he wants to be known in history this is a God who will be known. So for instance, I could say to you that uh, my wife is very creative, and uh, that's one bit of knowledge, or you could come around our house and I could show you some of the paintings she's done and some of the pottery she's done, and, and you can see that she is creative. It's one thing to say something, it's another to see it. There are times when words are not enough, when actions required are required to prove the reality of those words. And that's what we've got going on here. And what, what, what do we see about God here? Firstly, that he's the God of power. He's the God of power. He's the king over creation. Consider all these things. Water into blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock plague, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. I remember a few years ago, the Discovery Channel uh, on cable um, did a program to try and prove... Uh, provide a kind of a natural explanation for all the ten plagues in sequence. Although strangely, they didn't try and fit the um, turning the staff into a snake into the whole sequence. But as, as we come to kind of read these plagues, there's two errors we can make here. Firstly, the scientific rationalism, where we say, well, miraculous events like this just can't happen. So they didn't happen. And of course, we need to come to the Bible and realize that what we're talking about here is the God who made everything, the whole cosmos and this planet, just by speaking words. He spoke and they spun into being. You know, if this Big Bang Theory is correct, it's very interesting, isn't it? It, it, it says everything came back from one moment in time. There was nothing and suddenly out of, out of nowhere, so they say, everything exploded into being. Well, I think we know who started this whole thing. He spoke and galaxies spun into existence. And if we're dealing with a God like that, you know, a few boils and a few frogs is really not a problem, is it? Do you think a few locusts for this God is a problem? It's not a problem. It's really not a problem. And, uh, you know, we talk today of the laws of nature, but the reality is God is a consistent God. 
The reason that if you drop something to the floor, it keeps dropping to the floor is because we have a God who consistently acts in the same way. But God can choose to intervene into his creation and do whatever he pleases. It is a small thing to God. But the other danger too is that we only see God at work in the bizarre and the unusual. And what's fascinating here in this account is that is the way that God uses and controls creation to his own purpose. So did you notice with the locusts? Um, it doesn't say that God sort of miraculously made locusts appear out of thin air. It says he sent a mighty east wind all day and all night to blow in this terrible plague of locusts. And when, when, when Moses prayed, he, he sent a, a mighty west wind to blow them all into the Red Sea. There's no doubt that, that, that what we see here, God's mighty power and control over creation. He can do miraculous things within his creation. He can control the created order. This is the nature of the God that we worship. And we've seen in past weeks how one small little volcano can sort of disastrously impact the travel plans of millions. So the Louisville Five, uh, amongst myself, were stuck in America for another week. Just because a little volcano goes up. God can redirect millions of lives, frustrate our plans, affect schools and workplaces and damage company profits with one little volcano. And there's an even bigger one that could go any moment, apparently. And of course, God is far mightier than all of this. How mighty is our God? God can stop us in our tracks. He can humble every proud heart that sets itself up against him. No problem. How foolish then to live our lives without regard to this God. How foolish to, 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 to ignore God and his word in our culture, and in our national life. God could turn things in a second, just like that. And the point here too is it's not just his power over the natural order. It is that he is superior over all competing powers and false gods. And so to begin with, uh, Pharaoh tries to fight back with his own magicians. So in chapter 7 verse 11 we see that um, his magicians have some access to power. They can do their staff into snake business. Uh, they also manage to turn water into blood. But actually, interestingly, they're completely unable to turn blood back into water, which would have been a lot more useful at this stage, wouldn't it? A lot more useful. Hey, we've got some fresh water. We can turn that into blood too. That's really helpful. Thank you, magicians. And I find it very fascinating, really, that even though the whole place is full of frogs at one stage, uh, the Egyptians managed to produce a few more frogs. Well, thanks a lot. As if we didn't have enough frogs. When it comes to getting rid of all the frogs, all that Pharaoh could do was to beg Moses uh, and to plead with God to remove them. That was the only way they could get rid of them. God is so different to what are the powers that are out there. The powers out there can display power but no salvation. And when you get to the third plague of the gnats, the magicians are forced to bow out and they are forced to admit in chapter 8 verse 19, this is the finger of God. We can't do anything against this. This is the finger of God. There's a movie out, uh, which I haven't seen, but The Clash of the Titans. And I think it replays some of the old pagan, Greco-Roman views of multiple gods, gods of different jurisdictions over uh, different parts of the world. Well, the Egyptians, too, had their pantheon of gods. 
the god of the Nile, the god of the earth, the female deities who were linked with snakes, the, the male gods who were linked with frogs. I don't know why that is. That's strange. But uh, I'm not here to teach you bad theology, by the way. What I'm trying to point out is, is that each of these plagues shows the superior power of the Lord God over these different gods. The God of the Nile changed like that. God can make snakes and throw them to the floor. God can create these frogs and send them away. In each area, if you had the time to explore Egyptian history, you'll discover that God is revealing himself to Egypt as totally the supreme power over every so-called God in Egypt. Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, and Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people, they will remain only in the Nile. <clears throat> Got a frog in my throat. I don't know how that happened. Well, the question before us today is this. How are we going to respond to this knowledge of who God is? How are we going to react to the truth that there is one God who's sovereign over everything? God has made himself known and we now know what the Egyptians learned about God's power and character. What's more, we have the evidence of the life of Jesus Christ, who said in, in, in Luke 11, verse 20, If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Miracles take place in the Bible, not as magic tricks to amuse us. They are uh, uh, moments of revelation where God is revealing to us something important about himself. And so we have uh, loads of these miraculous events around the Egypt salvation event. And we have loads of incredible miracles around the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, as he feeds thousands of people with a few bits of bread and fish, as he walks on water, as he raises the dead, we are getting a revelation of God. God's king has come into the world. He has come to redeem his people. And we're left with the question as we look at Jesus, how are we going to react to this knowledge? How are we going to respond to this uh, unique God? There's great comfort as we read the Exodus plague events. And the comfort is this, when we humble our hearts to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we can face life with great confidence, knowing that we are trusting the one who is Lord of lords, King of kings, the one who is ruler over all things. There is no other person, there is no other power or spiritual force that is greater than our God, the one we've come to trust in Christ. And it puts us in an amazing place of peace and, and confidence if we can learn to trust him. If we've got a God who, can, uh, who has not lost control in an economic downturn or in the face of terrorism 
or in the face of a despotic leader who can control hail, frogs, boils, winds, and light. This is a God we can fully trust, isn't it? This is a God that we can fully trust. Look at the great revelation of how he controls all things here. Do you really think the one thing in creation uh, that he can't control is your little life? Are you the one little tricky thing that God hasn't got his hands on? Not so. Not so. God has awesome power and authority. And it's great comfort for those who humble themselves. And we see in some of the plays, God is quite able to make a distinction between his people and Egypt. He can show how he can keep his people even through the trials and tribulations that are facing the rest of the land. But we have to be honest here too. We have to say there is a great warning in these plague accounts. A great warning. Pharaoh's response should be a sobering warning to us. Eleven times we hear how he hardens his heart. See, our hearts this morning will either be hearts hearts that are hard, that are rejecting God and rejecting his word, or we will have soft hearts that will humble ourselves before God and before his word. What's your response this morning to this God? How have you responded to the gospel? Is it hardness of heart or humble repentance? What we see here too is that God is a God of patience as well as justice. People sometimes say to me, it's the next point by the way, people say to me that uh, they find it much easier to believe in God if he did a miracle right in front of them. But notice with me that the evidence here is that that's not the case. Consider all that Pharaoh saw and experienced. Does it get bigger than some of those things? And yet, he doesn't respond. He sees amazing displays of, of God's power. He, he, it builds and builds and builds, and we get this progress report on his heart. As the plagues move on, the mockery disappears. He knows he's dealing with a powerful God. And by the second plague, he's begging Moses uh, to plead with God to get rid of these frogs, and then he will let the people go. But of course, it's not true. Maybe you can recognize that kind of prayer. Suddenly when calamity is about to strike, amazing promises can be made to God that uh, if you pull through, this, you're going to do this. You know, if, if your business is facing ruin, you might say, well, God, if you, if you get me through this, I'm going to go to church every week. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give money. Um, or if you can pass this crucial exam, then you'll start investigating Christianity. Or, or People make these little promises and statements to God when things are tough. And the truth is, as the plane is falling to the ground, there are very few atheists on the plane. But when the situation improves, the genuineness of those promises are shown. And so as Moses pleads and the frogs die, then 8 verse 15, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And as each time Pharaoh is confronted with the power of God, things seem to develop. The first two times it says Pharaoh's heart became hard. And then 8 verse 15 it says he hardened his heart. The, the instinctive response uh, of the first few becomes a decisive act of the will. 
And then you get to the sixth plague, and we have the scary verse of, of, of 9 verse 12. Have a look at chapter 9 verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That determined opposition of Pharaoh was further confirmed and sealed by God. There is a process. He just sort of instinctively hardened his heart. He finally set his heart to harden his heart. And finally God confirms that. God hardens his heart. And my friends, as we read that, we should be greatly sobered. Every day we make choices. Good choices, bad choices. And as we persist in bad choices and good choices, habits are formed. And habits are so hard to break. And if we persist in those habits, we shape our character. And if we persist in that character, it affects our eternal destinies. And there's a clear progression here presented in Pharaoh's situation. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Well, the mysterious answer is this from Scripture. Pharaoh does, and God does. As we heard earlier in the service, Romans chapter 9 uses this very passage to show God's sovereign choice at work in both judgment and salvation. It's clear that God shows amazing patience with Pharaoh. Isn't that clear? That tenth plague is the worst of all, the death of a firstborn son. It's a terrible plague. But there's no way that anyone can say that God didn't give sufficient warning. Over and over. Pharaoh didn't deserve a warning overseeing such brutal slavery. And yet God in his mercy does warn him time and time again. There have been opportunities for Pharaoh to repent and, and acknowledge God with humility and obedience. But he does not. He refuses to do that. Many chances, growing evidence... He squandered the lot. Sooner or later, you know, everyone will finally, who finally rejects God will do so because of a conscious act of will, knowing in their own hearts that God is there, but choosing to reject him. And it is not any the less true because it happened just as the Lord had said. God had predicted this would all happen, but uh, nevertheless, Pharaoh made his own choices. Scripture reveals this uh, apparent contradiction that God is fully sovereign over all events and yet we, are, as mankind, make real choices and are fully accountable for our choices. And the truth is, if we stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the end of time, having hardened our hearts against God through our life by our own choice, we will have no one to blame but ourselves. Oh, my friends, if you are here this morning, let me tell you, you are more culpable today for any choices you may make against God because you have been here. God in His grace and mercy has brought you one more time to Charlotte Chapel that you may hear of God's gracious offer of salvation in the gospel. And today, if you harden your hearts against that message one more time, who says that you will have another opportunity? We presume upon the patience of God if we think there will be yet one more time. Now here is the sobering reality of the book of Exodus. There was a time where he had a choice and then there was a time where it was sealed and done and there, was, there were no more choices. 
my friends, if you know that you are living in such a way that you are disobeying God and his word, that you're rejecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would say to you young people, particularly here today, who've grown up in the chapel, you are in the most serious of uh, 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 dangerous positions, having heard over and over and over again the gospel. And if you are still hardening your hearts, I want to beg you to repent and change this morning. Because we do not know when we will have our last opportunity. We do not know. But see the kindness of God here. Ten times. The, the, the patience of God as he warns again and again and again. And yet, when it finally the final blow comes, God's justice is obvious. Look at chapter 9, verse 15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. My friends, the mystery is not that God should judge us. The mystery is that God should show any mercy whatsoever. That is the mystery. Why has God not destroyed the wicked already, including us, if we're, if we're amongst those who still not uh, had our sins forgiven? Well, his patience is being displayed to the world. His mercy and not wiping us off the face of the earth as we deserve. But even if, uh, after all this patience, we do not repent, it's not as though God's effort has been wasted. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Here is an amazing statement of the sovereignty of God. Pharaoh is in this job. He personally has been raised up for this very thing that his arrogant rejection of God might bring the display to the world of God's power and his patient character, that he is the patient, rescuing, yet just God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by a fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. My friends, do not confuse the patience of God with the fact that he will not fulfill his promises. That there has been such a delay for the Lord's return does not mean that it will not come decisively. And at that moment, everything will be clear. We've got to see in these plagues that God is both the God of salvation as well as judgment. These final three plagues, did you notice as we read from chapter 10, they're not for Pharaoh's benefit. Therefore, the benefit of God's people. Look again at chapter 10. 
verse 1, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. If you put your trust in Christ, then today you are here as one of those amongst the people of God. Israel's spiritual grandchildren. And we are to learn from these final plagues how God dealt harshly with the Egyptians. We are to learn here the penalty for rejecting God, persistently hardening our hearts. And I think what we have in these final three plagues really is a vision of hell. And, and as we read these chapters, we should be in no doubt that God hates sin and rebellion. There should be no doubt in our hearts that God is a holy God and rebellion and sin will ultimately be put down. See, after chapter 10, verse 4, Pharaoh is no longer given any challenge to repent. There's just three plagues, which, as I said, is, is, is a picture of what is in store for those who reject God. There's a destruction, darkness, and death. Just consider destruction, the locusts, They devour all that was left after the hail, it says in chapter 10, verse 15. No good thing will be left in God's final judgment. Everything good will be destroyed. And then there is the plague of darkness, a terrible sign of God's judgment. Everyone is utterly alone, it says in chapter 10, verse 23. No one could see anyone else. Oh, my friends, this is the significance of the fact that on The first Good Friday, as Christ hung upon a cross, there were three hours of total darkness. This is significance. He is bearing the judgment of God in the place of sinners. He died totally alone in the darkness for those who will trust him. But if we reject that, my friends, then we will bear this judgment ourselves. And so we've got destruction, we've got darkness, and lastly, death. The final awful judgment on the Egyptians is the death of the firstborn. The the, the severing of loving relationships, which is the worst aspect of hell. You know, there will be consciousness in hell, the Bible says, but it is not any sort of consciousness that we want to call life. And this is the utterly sobering destiny for all who persist in their rejection of God, in their Uh, rejection of his offer of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. As I say, the mystery is not why we should be judged, but that any should receive mercy. Now the question really is, well, why, why did the Israelites not experience all of that? Why did they not come under the judgment of the firstborn son? Well, we're going to consider that obviously next weak greatly but what is the difference between the people of God and the Egyptians as you read Exodus the last thing that came out of the mouths of God's people was bitterness against against Moses at one level these people are not any more deserving of mercy than the Egyptians are worthy of judgment my friends this salvation is all of mercy And as we're going to see next week, the only way that they are spared from this wrath of a holy God is because they come under the blood of a lamb. A lamb is taken 
killed. Blood is applied. And as we come to the table this morning, uh, the, the, the bread which symbolizes the body broken of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the cups that symbolize his blood shed for us so that we would not have to experience the awful judgment of God. My friends, I, I can't leave it here with just judgment. We've got to look ahead and see there is the hope. Have you come to humble your hearts and trust in this only way that you can be saved? Turning from your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, this plague narrative is totally sobering to me. God is a holy God. He will punish sin. But in His grace, there's a way of salvation. Have you laid hold of it? Where's your heart today? Is it a hard heart today that will continue to refuse Christ? Well, my friends, I beg you not to do that. I beg you to turn from your sin today to trust Christ. You don't know that you've got this week. What a joy it is to have humbled ourselves. This great and glorious God. To know that He is a God of patience, of mercy, of forgiveness, of grace. And knowing what it is to fear this Lord, we persuade others and we worship him. The God of patience and justice, the God of judgment and salvation, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God of glory who is really there.